0: Word, I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? word. 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 Was the word.
1: From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon.
0: Welcome to the season four ender of Word. On this episode, we're exploring something that we don't often discuss, and that's nonfiction. For a veteran living in Tucson, the act of writing a World War II biography was a difficult challenge that he simply did not expect.
2: I have a friend who is a writer who's published nine history books over the decades. He told me one time, he said, you don't realize it, John, but writing is really damned hard work. And now I realize he was right.
0: Plus, we'll talk to NPR's Scott Simon about the art of the essay, which he features on NPR's weekend edition.
3: I often say, That you can be serious three weeks in a row, but not four weeks in a row. And you could be allegedly humorous two weeks in a row, but not three or more weeks in a row.
0: But first, Allie Kripe is a student at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. She developed a love for writing at a young age, but her early professional life took her in another direction.
4: I grew up in the valley in Tempe, and then I traveled a bit because I was scouted for modeling, so I had a career... For that for about six to seven years just living in random spots all over the world and then i came back to arizona and pursued writing because i fell in love with books and writing and that's really pretty much it
0: had you always been a lover of books and a lover of writing at a younger age or is it just something that you kind of discovered later in life
4: yeah i've always really loved books and um i think when i was about nine or ten i wrote some silly little fan fiction Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was really silly. But yeah, I just liked writing from a young age, but I did it for fun. I didn't really think of it in career terms or anything.
0: And so you came back to enroll in Cronkite, is that right? At ASU? Yeah. Okay.
4: Yeah, I started at community college and then I, I worked up to Cronkite.
0: Bridging this gap between what you started out in childhood and now as a professional, you brought those two things together. Do you enjoy more creative writing or more news oriented things, documentary style writing?
4: I love them both. And they're both really different. So they're kind of like hanging out with two very different friends, you know, one's a little more quirky and the other one is more straight laced. You know, when you're writing journalism, you definitely have to make sure you have facts, obviously. So that's a lot of research and It's AP style, so it's certain wording.
0: We don't talk a whole lot about nonfiction in general or autobiographical or biographical writing on this program word. We try to stick to more of fiction or poetry, short stories, screenwriting, that kind of thing, Uh, playwriting, for instance. It's one of those things that I wanted to sort of take assessment of as this year goes by because a lot of people have been fictionalizing or putting into poetry what's been happening over the course of this year. But I wanted to talk to some people who may not necessarily have been writing about the coronavirus, but specialize, at least partly, in writing about real things in a nonfiction way, that is. And so you, along with others that we're talking to in this program, that's kind of the focus of this season closer. And one of the things that I have always personally found difficult is actually writing about myself. Has that ever been the case with you?
4: Oh, my God. Yeah. I find it really difficult, to be quite honest, because it's, it's personal and it depends on what you're writing about. There are certain things I've been trying to write essays about that are highly personal. So it's uh, how much do you show? How much do you talk about your life? What is the, uh, the border of that really?
0: I don't know if it's exactly the same, but perhaps like preparing for an acting role, you figure out how vulnerable you want to make yourself to the public. Of course, the difference in acting is that in most cases, it's a fictional thing, right? Not so much when it comes to writing about yourself.
4: Yeah. The funny thing about that is I actually, I acted for a bit when I lived in LA. And I find them really similar in a way that they both have to do a lot with Truth. So the main thing I feel about writing is telling the truth.
0: Right. Or exposing truths, as it were. Some people have a real personal sense of what their truth is, and they don't really care if it's anybody else's truth. Others have a sense of their truth. And, you know, maybe they're trying to explore a connection to other people. And so maybe it speaks to some people in a different way. Uh, Or maybe it's really, really relatable. And as an author, you just can't worry about that, right? What the audience thinks, because they're going to come up with their own interpretations.
4: Yeah, as soon as you do that, well, as soon as I do that, if I start worrying about, oh, my God, what is someone going to think about this? The work usually turns uh, to to be honest. Uh, So it is about being honest. And then I also feel like you don't want to expose too much, though. I mean, there's, there's a certain structure to writing, and there's a lot of writing that I love that's nonfiction, that's really vulnerable, but also has this sort of artistic beautiful poetry to it. Like Maya Angelou. Um, So I
0: a great example.
4: Yeah. She's, Oh, she's so phenomenal, but it's like, how do you get to tell the truth, but tell it in a way that it's, I don't know, full of flavors and textures and smells.
0: Well, Ali, I wonder if you would take us out with a piece called Flesh-Colored Shell written back in 2018, I believe, according to your blog, and it's about your time spent in Japan. This was in 2010 when you were there, and you were modeling, and uh, this is prior to the tsunami that caused the Fukushima nuclear disaster. I was actually living in that part of the world at that time, and I can remember flying into Tokyo from vacation and having to take pretty broad path around that area at the time, uh, not the normal descent into the Tokyo area that you know I had been used to. And you'd found a shell— on this location where you were doing this modeling. And this is again is prior to Fukushima. So I, I wondered if you could pick it up from sort of the latter half of this piece and talking about the fragility of that shell, where it starts out. The shell is fragile.
4: Okay. Yeah. The shell is fragile. If stepped on, it would break. Now it has a home on my bedroom shelf, safe from a storm or a shoe. It's sculpted beauty attracted me enough to pluck it from the sand But the idea that I could capture an adventurous day in the palm of my hand was what solidified our pact. In a selfish way, I'd stolen the shell from its home and stuffed it into my purse. In that instant, it became mine and no one else's. That coastal town seemed so small compared to Tokyo and on the brink of insignificance. It was somewhere the papers wouldn't mention in the aftermath of a disaster. Without a name, the town has become to me dreamlike intangible, ungooglable. The shell itself is mostly forgotten in my day-to-day routines, but if I happen to glance over at it on the shelf, it still makes me feel a pinch of something. Today I'm too old to model, but the shell hasn't changed at all. I keep it safe on my mantle. Sometimes I even hold it up against my ear and reminisce on the soft, distant waves from my past.
0: That's really an amazing personal connection to something that would otherwise just be seemingly simple to many people. But what I like about that is the revealing portion of yourself, the vulnerability there, and then just thinking broadly about something as simple as a shell and, and kind of posing it as this what-if question and how that's connected to a terrible world event, even though, of course, you picked it up and none of us had any idea that that was going to happen. And it's also distant from the world of journalism because there's the word me in here, right, and mm-hmm. describing yourself and using words that probably an editor would not allow you to write, like ungoogleable I can't imagine that getting through editorial.
4: No, that wouldn't happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Allie, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing a little bit about your personal story and this piece as well. Thanks so much, Allie.
4: Yeah, thank you, Tom. It was uh, really fun. Thank you.
0: You can find out more about Allie Kripe on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona in the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can?
1: Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org.
0: Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We're putting a cap on this season by discussing the art of writing creative nonfiction and essays. John Floyd and his wife Barbara are both veteran medical professionals living in Tucson. And his book, The Expendable, is an account of her father's experience in the Navy fighting to liberate the Philippines in World War II. John opened our recent discussion talking about how he and his wife Barbara met.
2: She was an infectious disease nurse, and uh, that's how we met. And I asked her out one day, and she said no, and we've been together ever since.
0: Well, God bless you both, because, I mean, of all times in our own immediate history, we sure appreciate both of you right now.
2: It's been beneficial for us to share that military background. And, of course, this book is about her father. i basically married into this story.
0: Well, I was going to ask you how, you know, aside from that fact, uh, you got into this story. And it's about Charles Conrad Beckner who was awarded a Silver Star and a Purple Heart uh, for his service in the Navy during World War II in the Pacific. I wondered if you'd just tell me very briefly about your time as a writer, and um, have you mostly used it to write nonfiction, or do you dabble in creative material as well? Not that nonfiction can't be creative.
2: Actually, I'm a reti- recently retired physician. I had a very satisfying uh, career, a very long and satisfying. Uh, but this book had been in my mind forming for probably a decade or more, maybe two decades. Oh, wow. I had written a lot of uh, scientific publications in academia. I've got about 24 publications in peer-reviewed journals. And I thought I would sit down and write this story, and uh, that would be it. And it it sucked me in, and I started researching, uh, but I never had time to actually do the writing until I retired. And uh, writing a nonfiction book uh, is far, far more difficult than I had imagined. Uh, it's a totally different than what I had imagined
0: why so? Maybe you can just tell me a couple of, of quick ways that it, it was more difficult than you thought it would be.
2: Well, the format for scientific writing is 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 quite set. Uh, only facts, no embellishment. Uh, you start with a summary, then uh, introduction, then materials and methods, then analysis and discussion, and then conclusions or findings. And then list out all your references that you put down through there, and you send it off to a journal who sends it to their reviewers uh, who send it back to you and challenge you on different scientific things, but nobody had to enjoy reading it. It was just the facts. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I thought I could do this. I joined a, a writing group here in uh, Arizona that uh, has a couple of uh, successful writers and it published writers. I was recording the facts and giving them chapters at a time to review and they kept saying, well, this is very interesting, John, but do you want anybody to really read this book or <laughs> you just want to record facts? And so I finally evolved into this uh, genre that's called creative nonfiction. You use dialogue, you use descriptive scenes, uh, you have to use, invent a substantial amount of the dialogue, but the events and the actions and the thoughts of everybody involved are, are true. I feel
0: like one of the things about World War II history, certainly when I was growing up, I don't know what your experience was like. And again, this could just be school systems. I grew up in the largely in the Midwest and parts of the South. But I really feel like until Tom Hanks' documentary series, The Pacific, came out um, number of years ago, outside of Pearl Harbor, a lot of World War II history was just not taught in my classrooms. Uh, The focus was more on the European theater. Was that your experience as well?
2: Yes. And in fact, Mr. Beckner and I discussed this uh, um, more than once. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he says, you know, everybody remembers Pearl Harbor But nobody remembers that uh, six hours later, we were attacked in the Philippines. And then he was quiet for a moment. And he said, but, you know, people remember Bataan. And and I think that's true. But nobody realizes exactly how we got to the Bataan Death March.
0: Right. That's fascinating to hear him say that because this was just, you know, a thought that I had, just my own personal experience. You always wonder if that was the case with other people. And I had the discussion, actually, with a fellow co-worker many years ago when I first started here. And he was like, boy, you're right. You know, when I come to think of it, that was the same case for me. I, I would put him somewhere probably in his mm-hmm. 60s. So I always wondered if that was the case for other people. Having lived on the island of Guam for about a decade, certainly I became better steeped in the history of the region. I've been to the Philippines many times. Uh, of course, I've been to Japan before uh, and some of the island's in the western Pacific region, which is what that area is referred to. What has been your experience in in terms of service? Were you mostly stateside, or did you serve overseas?
2: I was uh, mostly stateside, but my wife, at her insistence, said I needed to ask for an overseas assignment, and uh, we were assigned to an air base about uh, 30 minutes outside of Cambridge, England for a number of years. And then we came back and the rest of my assignments were scattered around the U.S., one Air Force base or another.
0: Now, the book focuses on the real-life battles between the invading Japanese forces into the Philippines, which, of course, America helped defend against and liberate along with Filipino forces. Were these battles something that your father-in-law discussed much, or did you have to, to draw out stories of his service? Because I, I know my own grandfather, really the only way that we communicated about it was he would show pictures, but he didn't talk deeply about his experiences, save for a couple of them.
2: Charles was one of those people that came back from the war and said, that's behind me and I'm going to pay attention to what's in front of me. In getting these stories, uh, I knew he had uh, been on PT 34 during the time that uh, they took MacArthur from Corregidor to Mindanao. And that was the focus uh, from which I approached trying to get this story. And it was like the proverbial pulling of teeth. We spent many afternoons uh, at his house in San Diego, cooking usually chicken or sometimes other things on the barbecue outside with a beer or two, occasionally three. And uh, I would ask questions, and I learned to ask them indirectly. uh, Oh, right, right. uh, And uh, just to bring up the subject. And I could usually get two or three sentences, occasionally four or five, and then the subject would be abruptly changed and we'd go to something else. So this story, it took about three decades to get his story uh, from him personally mm. to do a, I would say, a first person interview.
0: Right. I get the feeling that uh, Charles Conrad Beckner was like a lot of people in that he was living in the Midwest amidst a sharecropper family, as I understand, and enlisted uh, just about as soon as he possibly could, right?
2: Correct. It was uh, the latter part of the Depression. Life was hard, money was short. He did not want to be a farmer. He was ready to leave home, and this was a uh, his ticket out of town, so to speak.
0: Was there anything that you learned about yourself in writing this? Maybe mm-hmm. patience is a virtue, of course, would be one cliche. Uh, well, spending a lot I, of time, you know, 30 years and, and kind of keeping it in your mind.
2: I guess what I've learned is that doing something to the best of your ability, even though it may take a lot of effort and a lot of time, is ultimately worth it uh, creating something that's the best possible thing you can do is uh, rewarding in its own right i've also learned that writing is damned hard work i have a friend who is a writer who's published nine history books over the decades and i always joked at him about it must be nice to have a job or you can do it (laughs) when you want to and just uh, sit behind a typewriter and make money. And uh, he told me one time, he said, you don't realize it, John, but writing is really damned hard work. And now I realize he was right.
0: Well, that's very well said. And I really appreciate you coming to word, John, and talking about this true story. It's called The Expendable. And it's a true story of Charles Conrad Beckner. A fascinating uh, window into a little bit of his life. Of course, we don't want to spoil it for folks who will pick up the book. I can't thank you enough for coming to Word, John, and talking to us about biography. It's not something in terms of a genre that we focus a lot on here on Word. You know, again, we try to focus more on sort of the creative a sphere with things like poetry and short fiction, novels, playwriting, screenwriting, that kind of thing. But, you know, as we reflect on the course of this year, it's it's been so challenging for people and it's nice to get uh, a snapshot of, of real life people. And I, I think you provided one for us and also opened up a window possibly to others, about uh, if they've thought of writing, that it can be creative nonfiction, as you labeled it. So thank you so much, John, for coming to Word.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. Have a good day.
0: You can find out more about John Floyd on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region.
3: I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ.
1: KJZZ News is your connection to the state and the globe. Insightful conversations and fact-based reporting make it your one source for news and analysis. Listen and support the station at KJZZ.org.
0: Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. As we close out our season, I was grateful to catch up with NPR's Scott Simon recently It was a unique pairing, as Scott is the national host of NPR's Weekend Edition, and of course I provide local news and informational cut-ins throughout the program. Regular listeners know that one of his talents is writing essays. Some of the frequent devices he employs are history, sometimes it's a call for morality, maybe even introspection as to who we are as humans, and of course, his use of humor. But I began our discussion by asking if my notion that most of his essays were driven by a news peg is correct.
3: Yeah, I mean, because, you know, it is in the context of a news show. There are exceptions. I have done totally personal essays in defiance of the news. Uh, (laughs) You know, oh, example, God forbid, once when uh, my cat died, uh, I've, I've done totally personal essays on the adoption of both of our daughters when I returned to the show after after time back, oh mercy, when my mother died, uh, I wasn't even on the show, but I, I, I did an essay in that spot. But yes, for the most part, I try and look for a news peg, a story, you know, and, it, and it's interesting, you will understand when you, when you do this for a living and you do it week after week, some weeks it has to be, there's some overwhelming story with which you have to kind of be harmonious. Uh, if not comment on exactly. And then other weeks, it should probably be something that's got nothing to do with the news whatsoever, or at least not the, you know, not the news of the week whatsoever. I also try and have a mixture, which, you know, in times like the, the ones in which we're going through now is difficult. I often say that you can be serious three weeks in a row, but not four weeks in a row. And you could be allegedly humorous two weeks in a row, but not three or more weeks in a row. (laughs) Um, Because if you're serious too much, people think of you just as a scold. Sure. If you try and be humorous too much, people think of you as, you know, kind of a clown. What's been difficult, uh, you know, about these times is obviously, and not since 9-11, the days following 9-11, which has obviously been 19 years ago, have I had to worry, you know, quite so much about not hewing to that formula necessarily. I mean, I've had some allegedly humorous ideas I've wanted to do in recent weeks about uh, writing my own hallmark season movies, you know, other things, but it's very hard to do that when 3,000 Americans a day are dying because of COVID-19. So even if the essay isn't about Yet again, all the loss of life because of the coronavirus—that has to be something that fits the mood and the piece of it. So, you know, for example, on um, last week, I did something on what the cancellation of the Nutcracker around the country because of the pandemic, and what that kind of signifies about the crisis that uh, the performing arts are going through. You know, almost every week, I'm sure I could do an obituary for somebody remarkable who has left us because of the coronavirus. But again, you don't want to fall into a formula that's what people expect. Right. So I certainly have done a few of those, but I, I can't do that week after week.
0: I think most English speakers think of essay as a noun. You know, it's a thing that they had to do in high school or college, obviously, if they don't make their living in writing, for instance. But in fact, the word does come from the French verb, essayer, to try. And you've outlined what you try to accomplish when you set out to write something. What's the editorial process like after that?
3: Well, I come up with an idea and I get you know tacit approval from our producers who decide whether they think it's promising whether they think it will fit harmoniously with the rest of what we have in the show try and make certain it doesn't upstage or come at the expense of anything that we have on the show or anything that you know would be adjacent to it if it's something i really want to do they're pretty understanding of that i can't i don't recalled the last time they said oh please don't oh please don't <laughs> they've only said that that i can recall about ideas which i you know i've just been trying to joke with them about and then when i uh, when i finish writing you know can't be over two and a half minutes i send it to our producer uh sarah lucy oliver and our executive editor evie stone and they go over it word by word evie typically is the one who gets back to me with comments you know Do you really want to say that here? Is this quite the word there? What about this? What about that? What's the attribution for this? We want to be correct and we want to be fair. So it's a rigorous editorial process. But, you know, I must say also very fair. Uh, more than once Evie has said to me something like, well, I disagree, but you're the one who's got to handle the email. (laughs) uh...
0: Well, that's one of the things that I frequently hear uh, that people say who listen to the show on a regular basis is that the writing, not just for your essay, just the writing around the entire show is just brilliant. And it really keeps people coming back to public radio on the weekends, This particular program, Word, focuses on the literary arts, and I I think sometimes people do not necessarily consider an essay as an art form, and that might have to do with what we talked about, whether people think it's kind of an academic chore, but what makes a good essay in your estimation? What makes it maybe artistic, if if you even agree with that?
3: Oh, sure. And I, I, think, I think essays can be artistic. And I mean, I think there are several things. Firstly, is a, if it can reach into people, if it can affect people somehow, move them, make them think. I also, you know, I, I think the language has to be chosen carefully and has to communicate. You write for the ear. I, I, we're in obviously a spoken medium. But it's interesting when you, uh, you you can read many essays, and many of them, in fact, seem to be written for the ear, uh, avoiding the use of gerunds, ING words, declarative sentences with the exception of ones when you need to make uh, another point, conversational, something that has a, a quality of lucidity about it, something that that takes a situation and makes you see it perhaps in a slightly different way, something that can have, uh, affect the viewpoint that, uh, that somebody has, you know, I'm not trying to change anyone to my points of view. And often I don't have a point of view in that. I don't, I don't think I have some kind of resolution to, to a problem that I raised. Right. Um, but, I do think that it's, and and part of what we ought to be doing in in journalism anyway, is to kind of bring people through a thinking process and uh, uh, help them take a look at what's going on in our world. And I think an essay can do that, and it can do that, whether we're talking about the uh, terrible loss of life and other experiences during this pandemic, or the experiences of a new season, or some milestone in somebody's life, or some minor story in the news that Attracted attention and uh, and made you think it might deserve some sort of wider framework and uh, setting. Sometimes, I would like to get back to a time when, and I, I think so would we all, just not for my sake. When we can just be uh, a little more inane <laughs> and irrelevant, yeah, and uh, you know, occasionally just you know, just for fun obviously uh, at the moment that you and i are speaking we're, we're probably not there yet and i don't i don't mean by that that everything has to be right in the world because otherwise who you know who which one of us would put one fat, foot after another or get out of bed in the morning but I do think that we have to recognize there are a lot of people are living with a lot of hurt and a lot of anxiety right now. and We have to talk in a way that respects that.
0: Speaking of that, word choice obviously is important. I mean, you kind of alluded to that. And I love how you describe the process of essay writing as sort of just putting it out there into the world, uh, inviting people to think, not unlike a painting invites people to view and they, they come up with different impressions of that. I think that's something that's endemic the public radio. And so as far as word choices, I just use the word endemic because I feel like, you know, I don't want to dumb down to our audience, but is it difficult for you sometimes to get to the right word?
3: Oh, sure. And I think it should be. I think anybody who, uh, you know, who writes for a living will tell you it's only fun when it's over. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I, look, I guarantee you, if I knew how to do anything else, I would. But, uh, you know, I I could barely get by with this. So um, word choice is supremely important uh, when you're communicating effectively or want to. I guess I speak a lot about what kind of words I try and avoid. I mean, for example, I really do try and avoid any kind of cliche. And I don't like particularly words and phrases that become current cliches like inflection point. I particularly don't like that for some reason. The such and such community strikes me as very hazardous. I think it's it's perfectly fine when, you know, let's say you're referring to the African-American community of Dayton, Ohio, although we shouldn't assume that there is some sort of unanimity of view right. in it's that not, phrase. Right, it's not
0: monoculture, which... Frequently, people get into describing different ethnicities, different groups right. of people.
3: But I, I mean, I have had some, you know, hilarious ones. Including, I had a phone conversation the other day with a perfectly nice person who referred to the credit card community. <laughs> I <guess> this <laughs> That's a new one on me. the credit card industry. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I said, "Excuse me, wait a minute. The credit card community? Well, you know, so uh, I think that can be overdone." you know, cliches that uh, the old joke goes, we should avoid like the plague <laughs> because, you know, which which doesn't mean that I won't unconsciously almost use one without thinking at one time or another. But I think that forces you to, uh, you know, to have a, a different degree of attention and focus and, and care and concern for language and words. And uh, you do want to be clear, but I, I don't think to follow up on your use of the word endemic, that means dumbing down, quite the opposite. I don't want to use, for example, a scientific or highly academic phrase that is only familiar to a few people and not in, in the general public. I try, and it's been harder because I've been married to a French woman uh, for the past 20 years, the most wonderful woman in the world, but I, I try and avoid you know, using foreign phrases like, uh, ah will the raison d'être for that or something or
2: like that. Or joie de vivre.
3: Uh, right. right. <laughs> yeah, very well. Uh, you know, unless sometimes it's perfectly fine if you're making a joke or, you know, and a phrase like joie de vivre, is, you know, I guess you could get away with that because, uh, oh, our 17-year-old baby, our children are bilingual. Do you ever say joie de vivre? No, she says she never said. That. Okay, thank you. Just asking. <laughs> well, take back everything I just said. Uh, in any event, uh, I try and avoid that because you you want to communicate with people. But I also think that if you use a word or a phrase that is not immediately familiar, the context with everything you say will make it and can make it understood. Nevertheless, so I don't I don't believe in dumbing down to anyone. But you know, I do hope that we can be clear and not get caught up in scientific or technical jargon, or or for that matter, sociological and academic jargon. And I think I probably don't have to tell you that in the public radio community, if I may resort to that phrase, uh, we can do that sometimes, can't
0: we? Absolutely, we can. NPR's Scott Simon, you hear most frequently on Saturday mornings here on KJZZ with NPR's Weekend Edition. Scott, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking about the art of essay writing and sharing some real human moments with us. I really appreciate it, Scott. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom. You can hear NPR's Scott Simon and yours truly Saturday mornings with Weekend Edition from 6 to 10 on 91.5 FM and KJZZ.org. And thus, we come to the end of another season of Word. Portions of this program have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award. We'll be back early next year with our annual haiku writing contest. Until then, I'm Tom Maxedon, and thanks so much for supporting public radio and the literary arts in Arizona and the region.
4: Word. Word? Word! Was the word?
1: Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.